0: I'm Peter Kenyon and welcome to the Unpeel.press podcast, where I explore the many layers that make up Northeast Victoria's incredible food culture. Today I visited Lauren Salathiel and Chris McGorlick in Yakandanda. Lauren and Chris are hugely values-driven, passionate, determined, and totally committed to thinking differently and doing things around their community food principles. They owned St. Monday Cafe in Yakandanda for three years and through it they made an enormous impact on food culture here in northeast victoria. We had a great time today chatting, laughing and touching on some big ideas about food, community and culture. As a result this episode is a long one. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have had making it. Tell tell me about your story and what drew you to northeast victoria and then maybe we'll get into where food comes into it because mm-hmm. it's um, obviously important.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm I'm from Wangaratta, so I grew up in Wangaratta, and I guess since the end of school have been around different parts of the country doing different things. And, you know, when Chris and I met, we spent a lot of time over in the Goldwyn Valley. Um, Chris's family are dairy farmers, and that's a dairy farming region over there, and they're cheese makers as well. And we spent a fair bit of time there, but the the community – angle of things didn't really feel right to us. Mm. Um, and I guess we had always wanted to come back to northeast Victoria, this part of the world.
2: Well we were in that we were in the fortunate position to be able to choose where we wanted to live. Mm. And we knew that we couldn't live in New Merca, which is where we were at the time. And yeah, we kind of shortlisted a few places around Victoria where we wanted to live and none of them were Melbourne. Um, and yeah, the Northeast was kind of top of that list, really, uh, just because it seemed to have a lot of the things that New America didn't have, which was just a bit more vibrancy and a bit more diversity in the community and um, still and, close to family yeah, as well. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and then the job opportunity came up for me, so we moved and we never really looked back. Mm.
1: Uh, so we're in Yak and um and this is very much the place that we wanted we wanted to be but also very much the place that we want to be now yeah. um we really can't imagine being somewhere else or you know contributing to a different type of community it's it's really exciting to be part of a community that's very socially and environmentally progressive it sure is and yeah. where there's a real opportunity to contribute to what the future of the town is going to be.
2: Um, some of that scale too, like just being, by virtue of it being a bit smaller, uh, I don't know, anything that you do in the community, you really feel the impact of. Mm. Um, yeah, like it does feel like any, any work that you do in the community, you see the evidence of because you're not one of a hundred people doing the same thing. You're probably the only person doing that thing. Mm.
0: Uh, but you get a lot of support here. Not, yeah. And not just you, because I know that you've had a lot of support, but it, whatever projects get going here, the, the people pile on. The, yep. It's a, I don't know, there's something in the air or yeah. something in the soil here that really, much more than Beechworth.
1: Absolutely. I think there's a real proactive can do attitude here. And I, and we arrived in town right at the start of Kathy McGowan's election campaign the first time around.
0: Oh, that was the, when you arrived here in this town. Okay. Yeah.
1: And that to me really epitomized what this town is about because it was a bunch of people who were just doing what they could or what they knew about, um, based on a shared set of values to progress something that they believed in. And it it sort of it was this wacky, very organic feeling campaign and I think that really is the the sense of everything that happens in Yak, you know, there are you, you want to have a music festival? Okay, you know, no one's ever run a music festival, but let's figure it out. We'll figure it out together, you know. Somebody knows how to do this, somebody knows about putting up tents, somebody knows about logistics, somebody knows about music, you know, they've played music or whatever, but we'll figure the the gaps out. together and i think that that's really what has shaped our our time here i think um so we arrived in town and chris was working for council and then after his role wrapped up we wanted to start a cafe together chris has a background in hospitality um i don't or didn't I think I do now. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing,
0: nothing beats experience. I can tell you that.
1: (laughs) You get in deep quickly, um, and we looked around for somewhere to do that. For, for quite a while.
0: Sound effect, that's really appropriate. Te- <laughs> tea's, tea's being poured now. Tea's
1: being poured. Um, so we looked around for somewhere to do that and fortunately a, pl- a shop front opened up. So we were able to to start a cafe in the main street. And I guess the thing with the cafe was we didn't want it to be just another eatery. We, we had heard about this principle of third places you know creating a space in the community where people can gather and it's where ideas are formulated and very much a a hub for creativity but also this idea of culture shed which is that a region is nourished by what is cultivated locally and that's both agricultural production but also cultural production and we wanted to be part of that we yep. wanted to kind of be a, a, a hub for that a center center for that um and you and,
0: absolutely were
1: well and that was that was because i think we had the have the good fortune to live in a place where there are so many local food producers hmm. we were able to source 100 percent of our fresh ingredients from people who grew it locally wow. which meant that it was hyper seasonal um you know in winter time it was greens there's not a yeah, tomato not. to be seen. There's not an avocado smashed up on toast to be seen ever. We never served avocado on toast. What I'm about the
0: mangoes
1: <laughs> and the bananas and the
0: <laughs> banana banana and mango smoothie?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, and it forced us to be creative. Yeah. It forced us to learn, and our our chefs to learn about how to prepare really interesting food in the height of winter when all you had were cabbages and bunches of kale.
0: Well done. Because it, it reminds me where I go and often see it, we use seasonal where possible.
1: Yep. Or
0: we use organic, all in organic ingredients where possible. And there's no auditing of that. No. So what does the where possible mean? They go, oh, it was 20 cents too much, so I didn't bother. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay, and sometimes
1: right. it can mean that places don't have access to local growers. You know, I, I that's a very real element of the whole hospitality thing when you're talking about local produce. We're really lucky that we had Yak Organics, Gina and Steve, growing in town. We had uh, Matt and Tamsin from Greenwood and Grogan growing in town and Erin um, Callaghan from Rad Growers near Albury. And we, from the three of those, they've managed to, I mean, they didn't, Collaborate, or it wasn't a deliberate collaboration, but they their offerings complemented each yeah, yeah. other. Yeah,
0: And that's what happens because yes. they're in slightly different locations. Exactly. And what grows best there doesn't grow literally around the corner or down yes, the hill.
1: Exactly. Mm. So yeah. we, we managed to have a wide variety of stuff. And there's also a
2: bunch of backyard growers who yeah. bring stuff in yeah.
1: and, and swap it. Gluts
2: to. Uh, and deal that's with very them. yak
0: and dander. Yeah, a- yeah. And I should say for the listeners that you've got a nature strip out the front with broad beans growing and what else can I see rhubarb and uh, (laughs) there's
1: lettuce and there's some cabbages out there and kale and silver beans. and if we're
0: a different type of council they'd be saying you can't do that
1: well I mean They still might say. We haven't
2: really had that conversation yet.
0: Oh, well, we've got our food policy now in in Indigo Shire Council, so I I think that that, that's something we should be encouraging.
1: Yeah, we very much operate on the um, ask for forgiveness rather than permission sort of (laughs) principle. Uh,
0: That's somebody who understands bureaucracy, I think, says that. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and that... So the cafe for us was... um, really uh, a great introduction to the local food scene mm. in northeast victoria um and the seasonality of food in northeast mm. victoria because w- when we were living in the goulburn valley i mean you could throw seeds up in the air and they would grow it was so hot over there the soil was good
0: Oh really and yeah. it's not that far from not, west of here
1: no it's not that far but the growing season was totally different Yeah, yeah. So which is why
0: apples one of the re- one of the major reasons apples have grown from have gone from here to to the golden valley because of the larger scale and different seasons and yeah and the advantage of course for apples that the appeal of apples is the coloring that develops and that used to happen with traditional varieties of apples with cooler nights yeah and warmer days but modern varieties don't need that cold night to develop the color, and so that was a you know the the advantage was eroded yeah. from from our region up here like Stanley and this area yeah mm. right
1: mm. yeah, so um I think
2: what um uh the sort of theory that we followed with the cafe it kind of stands true for a lot of things because uh we wanted. Uh, we wanted the cafe to be different and you know when there's a cafe on every corner how do you make something different and so we the start of that whole journey was really just uh asking uh what are the things that make this corner different to every other corner uh and that was and, and that leads you to uh making our offering reflective of the place that it's in uh and so obviously the obvious place was uh, the ingredients where the food comes from you know Mm. it's got to reflect what actually grows around you and then once we sort of had those systems in place it was trying to make the character reflect the local character and uh, um, you know have the experience of visiting the cafe be you know a microcosm of the experience of living or spending time in this place and and I think those ideas are really transferable Um, you know the things that make anything unique are where it is, or the you know the products that make it up, and um, yeah, I think we'll carry an element of that with us wherever we go. Mm.
0: And did you have a time frame for it? Because you're not doing it anymore.
1: No. So um, we we anticipated that it wouldn't be any more than a five year project. Wow. But we had okay. a three and a half year lease on the building. Mm. So by the time the lease came up, we it was you know we had that conversation about do we sign up for another mm. period or do we do we go on to the next thing and i guess the thing with doing a hospitality business the way that we did it where everything is made from scratch the bread the pasta all the preserves cordials and Mm. all of that sort of stuff milkshake syrups yeah everything was made from scratch it relied heavily on chris and i being there for about i don't know (laughs) 12 hours a day I
0: know I've done it yeah yeah.
1: and, and cafe owners you know gl- globally the world over will know this fact but I guess yeah when you do it everything from scratch that way you're not just opening packets and tipping, tipping yeah. stuff into deep fryers um, it was it was really hard and it was tiring it was mm. really tiring and by the time we got to the the end of the lease um, I guess the conversation was very much framed by this question of well if we continue to do it for another five years can we give the same amount of energy to it as what we have been mm. doing because to do anything less would be to compromise on our vision in,
0: in and, that sense though it it wasn't if I can put it this way and, and I, I'm also putting on my other small business hat because I did it for 12 years yep. in Sydney and I know how hard it is and you know cost of your real your real cost of life and what you get from your business and all of that and having to match that up and so in that sense it wasn't sustainable unfortunately no and I, how do you make it sustainable how can you keep that that that's the essence I yes. suppose of how do you keep a passionately driven small business sustainable over the long term so or, or is that not important should it be just you know
1: um, for, for us the it wasn't financially sustainable. No, it was financially sustainable for us. I'll frame it a different way. It was financially sustainable for us because we live such a frugal lifestyle.
0: Mm.
1: We committed to only paying ourselves what we needed to survive Mm. and the rest of it was plunged back into the business. So, and we could live with that because it, it matched our principles, you know, it, we were living according to our values, not that our values stipulated that we needed to work 12 hours a day, but we certainly weren't being paid for 12 hours work a day. Um, I guess it was a passion project. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's it's beautiful to think that there are those businesses that exist for these short periods of time mm. where they they don't compromise on values and they are an articulation of somebody's values. Mm. But I think that if you try to scale that to something where you, you know you're going to earn, I don't know, whatever it is that people want to earn out of it for for what, for what an equivalent amount of work that they would be doing in an office or somewhere else, I, I don't think it's possible.
0: You have to pace yourself. Yeah. I, 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 it brings to mind Kathy's tenure as our local MP. Mm-hmm. And Kathy's philosophy that you you do something, she only ever intended to do two terms, was my understanding. And she did the two terms and she, she ran a pretty mean race for those two terms, mm. which gives a very different approach to how you do anything, whether it's political representation or running a cafe, it gives a very different perspective on how you do the job. If you think I've actually got a time limit, I will give it everything mm. yes. I can. Compared to somebody who goes, I'm a career politician. And I'm not criticizing no. that because that is the whole system. But everything kind of pushes you towards that yeah. is that you get elected, and you go, Phew, the hard work's done. Now I'll just a relax cruise. for 20 years or 30 yeah. years. And, you know, and it's a job and I just go to work every day. Whereas Kathy didn't have that attitude. And you obviously didn't have that attitude running a cafe. So mm. I'm thinking we've got this paradigm that suggests that you do something forever and ever
1: yeah
0: how do we draw the energy from what you and kathy and that that model of of the sprint the short sprint and pass the bat on to somebody who will keep
1: that's right doing the short it's actually sprint, a but maybe relay it, it's not it's not just a sprint it's that's a right. relay that's right. So you are opening up a space for somebody else to to grow into whatever and, and it is things that evolve. they
0: want so we're very mm. nimble in that way and helen is now doing her part of of that mm. and she will do Presumably, hopefully, her two terms, and then pass the baton on further. How do how do we how do we capture that in a small business and in a food in a food sense?
2: I think um, uh, I, I don't know. I have, we've spent a lot of time in the aftermath of the cafe thinking about this, and and I think um, the responsibility is not just of the uh, the operators uh, because the pathway to making uh, hospitality sustainable for owners is to cut corners and to find the cheap and easy ways to do things, to buy things in that are prepared and to lose all of those things that make you unique and uh, representative of your local area. Uh, And so you do, you pursue that to the point where you are just opening packets and putting things in fryers. And, you know, that describes 99% of the offerings that are out there. Uh, and 99% of people are okay with that. Or uh, well, they don't
0: know an alternative. Maybe, that, that, yeah. maybe that's it because it, what you offered is so unique. Uh,
2: but yeah, I think that if, uh, if there was no longer a market for average, ordinary, bland, beige, uh, uh, it would cease to exist. Uh, you know, if people's expectations were higher... Uh, models would be produced to try and meet those expectations, I think. So, Mm. I don't know, both sides of it need to be addressed, uh, that certainly we need to celebrate the people who are doing really interesting, good things. Um, But, uh, yeah, I think...
1: So it's cultural, is what you're saying, that we need to cultivate a culture
0: um, in um,
1: our towns and amongst communities where good food is special occasion, sort of stuff and people are willing to pay what it the, the true value of food
0: yeah, yeah, when they're so. eating
1: out in hospitality outlets mm. Mm. maybe that's the key well, the secret to the universe has been revealed
0: well all I, I think all my thinking is that it's down to food culture because I often talk about I, I did a degree in food systems and mm-hmm. food policy but it seems to me that that word systems is very scientific
1: yes. it, it's
0: the economic system you know it's okay we think about it in that sense but it kind of it, it also detracts from every everyday people thinking about what it means to them whereas food culture mm. captures that and is that but it's it captures that greater emotional connection yes.
1: that well I think the, the systems actually are derived from the culture the culture determines what type of systems you end up with you know, if you have a culture where people really prize locally grown food and prize the people who are growing it and the people who know how to prepare it, then the food system that you end up with necessarily looks completely different. We're not, you know, we're not trading in in mass produced junk. Hmm.
0: How do we, what does, I think, I know we've kind of covered it anyway, but what does a good food culture look like? And. What does a good food culture in North East Victoria look like, and how do we get there?
1: Um, to me, I think it's something that's hyper localised. That it's, and I guess this is something that we've been trying to capture in what we're doing now with Happy Underground, our market garden, where it's, it's so localised to the point that it's almost exclusive to play. It's exclusive to plays it's and I'm I think I think exclusive to the point where it's yak and dander food yeah. it's not Beechworth food it's not Wangarata food it's yak and dander food and the yak and dander food as produced by yak and dander people for yak and dander people and you have that a direct interface whether with the person who's growing it or you know an intermediary like a cafe for example and like a chef who cares enough about yak and food to pr- prepare it properly and with care. And that is, that creates the story and that mm. creates the, the culture and the, the feeling, I think, between, amongst people around food.
2: I think certainly a really great starting point for creating local food culture would be for individuals' first point of contact with food to be a grower. Uh, or even just a, um, uh, like a greengrocer or a local retailer rather than, uh, you know, if, if every single person right across this country's first point of contact uh, with food is a supermarket or something like akin to that, which is generic, like right, you know, where it's the same offering right across the country, then the notion of a food culture is crazy, it's ridiculous to you because there's no way to make that local or to, to tweak that to be you know an expression of uh, what makes your area unique. Uh, so you know, every single town in the country needs uh, growers who are dealing directly with the public or they need a great greengrocer who's dealing directly with local growers. Or uh, you know if that first point of contact is an expression of your local area, uh, then so much flows from that. Mm. Because uh, if that means that you can't get, or if um, you know, if uh, a mango is just not even part of the offering, um, then you know that doesn't form part of your idea of what food should be. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think that that's a really great filter. Um, you know, you know, I, I don't know. I, my feeling is that people need um uh, or you know we have this almost ideological opposition to uh, limits and um, barriers and things you know if if something is available to us then there's this kind of weird ideology that it should be I need it uh, I have to yeah. have it
0: it has to be. Yeah,
2: uh,
1: I'm entitled to yeah, have it. Yeah. yeah,
2: So you know, does the fact that we can get a banana here in Yakandanda mean that we should have a banana? You know, I don't think so. I think we'll all survive without a banana. If it does mean that there's mm. a, you know, a but you of other can't things.
0: regulate against that. I, 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 mm. I, I'm with I'm with you. But mm. I also, we can't regulate. We can't say there's a, you know, at the border there's a. Yeah. We're going to start drawing borders. <laughs> no friso. banana freezer. But you know we can go, we can we can go all over the place, but we just can't take our food with us. And yet, food has been moving all around the world. And that's the crux of it, in a way. You know, we look at food culture of Italy. Well, the tomato didn't come from Italy. Mm. The tomato came from Central America. Yeah. And the potato yes. in Ireland didn't. It came from South America. So that movement of food. But I suppose what you're saying is it, it grow, it becomes endem- endemic. Yes. It, indi- it indigenizes to an area. Whereas the banana doesn't grow here.
1: That's right. And I think you don't need to regulate. You you shouldn't need to regulate. People should feel um, strongly enough about local food that they look at a banana versus an apple from Stanley or a peach from the neighbour's tree or whatever it is and say, actually, it doesn't make sense for me to eat a banana. Yeah. You know, what a banana... Any more than it makes sense to eat Swallow's Nest or, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be. The,
2: the great thing about the uh, Italian tomato story and the Irish potato story is how quickly those things have become part of that cultural identity. Uh, and that gives me great, you know, that to me that's massively exciting because uh, it means that we can transform food cultures within our lifetimes or... Um, you know, we can, we can live to see these transformations happen. Uh, and you know, I think the, the celebration side of thing is definitely the pathway, you know, to make the act of purchasing your food a really fun, interesting, engaging one rather than a chore that you have to go and do. Um, and, and again, I think that's something that inevitably fo- flows from having your first point of contact with food being something that's inherently local, mm. uh, uh and then but you know it doesn't it's not just a retail problem it's also uh you know whenever you're talking about cultural transformation you're talking about you know every facet of the culture so it's not just uh it, it's everything you know it's uh how you actually go about procuring things how you celebrate them you know how your festival and cultural events include those elements and match
0: the uh, season and the location yeah, of where you yeah exactly are. Mm. uh
2: I mean, really, the more you dig into it, the more you realise it's not just uh, a food culture, it's a life culture. Uh, you know, it's, it's everything.
0: And, and local government particularly talks about, because that's the level of government that, that has m- most relevance to our region. Mm. They talk about place-based solutions. It's often about solutions. Yes. But they talk about place-based. And, and surely, I, I can't understand why food is not the, the major component of that. When they talk about place based why why food isn't the driver of mm. what establishes what a place is. Yeah. And and it seems to me that we've lost that market square. Or perhaps we never really had it. It's never become an inherent part of an Australian town. To have a market. Yes. And it might be three times a week. I'm thinking of Mainz in Germany or any number of German or European towns where or, or South America or Japan or where yes. one of the major functions of local government is to create the space and to keep it clean and you yeah. know cobble things and make it flat and people come in you know five o'clock in the morning three times a week and open their stalls up and sell what they produce locally. Yeah, I, I can't. That that's one of my projects. I'd love to see happening.
1: Yeah, I think that's hugely that's a hugely exciting prospect and something that is missing from from communities, small communities, particularly because even when communities do have farmer's markets, often they're once a month mm. and it's not really a viable substitute for going to the supermarket. You still have to go to the supermarket to buy your flour and your toilet paper and your, you know, all the other things that are missing from the, mm. the farmer's market or that you can't get.
0: And it seems to come, to me, it seems to be driven through tourism rather than yeah. day-to-day living. This and is-
1: I, I wonder actually whether, the pandemic, whether COVID is going to change this for us, though, because we the, the lack of resilience in supply chains has been revealed. And I think there has been a, a sort of a burgeoning interest in localised food to try and counter some of those things that people have felt panicked about not being able to get. I mean, we've certainly seen with the market garden, when the pandemic started... We, we could have been selling twice the amount of food that we had that we actually were able to produce because the level of demand just grew almost instantly. Um, and I think growers, I mean, we've heard from other people through you know forums that we've been that we've participated in in the past few months that everybody has everybody growing food has experienced the same thing to a certain extent. So whether we're able to actually capture that and channel it into something meaningful for communities post pandemic, I think Mm. is interesting and really potentially exciting.
2: Um, I think this relates a little bit uh, to what I was thinking just now, which is that uh, so much of the food growing that happens in our area is uh, sold to commodity markets or, you know, goes elsewhere. Uh, You know, the Northeast is seen as a food growing area, but the vast majority of that food... um, is tied to economies elsewhere it's not um supported by uh or the you know the viability of those enterprises is not based upon the people who are here it's based mm. upon who it and evaluating the is often done elsewhere and that's also tourism based yeah. oh and a lot of the valuating which happens here is uh has a tourism focus as mm. well so that's also uh relying upon economies of elsewhere and i think to have that massive cultural shift in um in our area for local food we also need to have a massive economic shift to make um, this local area be uh, the principal means of supporting the agriculture which is in this area. Uh, I mean, and that's, vice not that, versa. that's not that there shouldn't be uh, you know, excess which is exported, but uh, uh, I think if that were to happen, we'd see a massive radical shift. Um, mm. Uh, in, in our food culture, uh, you know, we don't, people, growers don't really, uh, unless people are prepared to deal directly with their customers in the way that we are, which is not viable as soon as you start to get to a larger scale. Um, um, well, I've just lost my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think this is a massive uh, problem for us that uh, you know, the vast majority of the food that we produce here is supported by economies elsewhere. Mm. And I think that's a big cultural shift that uh, is ripe for the potential. And COVID's and,
0: revealed that with things like yeah. PPE and yeah. face masks. We've suddenly gone, oh gosh, we let them get manufactured in two places in China or wherever in yeah. the world because it was cheaper. And now...
1: Crikey, what do we do when exactly. there's... And I think also climate change is going to necessitate us making that change Mm. if we don't do it willingly it will be forced upon us we will get to a point where you know we, we always laugh when we see a truck that has the sign on the back of it that says without trucks australia stops because it's actually you know trucks are actually part of the problem pumping out emissions as they convey food from queensland to victoria and then all around victoria but, it, but it's but true it i mean is the food true. system
0: would stop if the it truck would, stopped
1: but what we actually need is something that means that we actually don't need the truck in the first place mm. so so then you are you're combating two problems at the same time you are um making obsolete these huge supply chains that we rely on and that are vulnerable at times of disaster and pandemic and crisis and you're also doing something about emissions. And you're it's actually three problems because you're increasing resilience of local communities. I just, every time I see that sign, I just think, man, you know, there's such a huge opportunity there if the trucks stop. If we get in ahead of the trucks stopping and actually start to create the foundations for these things in local communities, we could truly have amazing communities, I think, from a, a local food perspective and also a resilience perspective. Mm. Truck drivers
0: aren't going to like that, are they? I'm thinking too, at the moment, we've got a parliamentary inquiry on remote Indigenous communities and the food problem in terms of getting food and the expense and the handling of it. And, of course, our big duopolistic, essentially, supermarkets, they're being looked at as having a role to play, but it's not viable for them. Mm. And and in, in a sense, why should they be given any responsibility for that. But the government is going, well, it is a problem. And, it, and, you know, in terms of nutrition and availability of food, do those principles that we talked about around market gardens and all towns producing some kind of food around them, is that is that realistic? and? Is it realistic in indigenous communities? Because people aren't going to go back to hunter gatherer lifestyles. That's quite, a, I think that, you know, there's a patronising element yes. to that. You know, people have a right to have whatever, you know, more or less in modern society, whatever you want, as we've talked about. Yeah. If, if people come at it from the sense of a cultural choice, that's their choice rather than something that's imposed upon them. Yes. And, and can those principles around eating locally apply everywhere in our country?
1: I, well, I think there there are two things there that sort of spark questions for me, or not questions, but I think there are two things that need to be addressed when we talk about local food systems and market gardens and things like that. And one of, one of them is that they are the realm of the privileged in Australia and probably elsewhere as well. You know, places like America or Canada, they probably are there as well where... Um, It's only people who have access to land who are able to grow, it's only people who have the disposable income to pay the premium for those local locally produced things that actually have access to them it's only people who have the privilege to know what to do with seasonal ingredients who are able to prepare them so if you don't know what to do with a cabbage or a bunch of kale when that's all you've got in the middle of winter then yeah of course you're going to go and buy whatever else it is from the supermarket so i think the question of privilege and food production is one that really needs to be addressed. And that's that's for low-income communities as much as it is for Indigenous communities, I mm. think. But then I also think that the the fact of local food economies is that they will be different everywhere. So whereas we might have dairy products and you know, vegetables and fruit that we're able to grow here and over in the Goulburn Valley, they've got dairy farms and fruit and vegetables coming out their ears and, you know, um, wherever else it might be, that the, the makeup of a local food economy is going to look different everywhere. Um, and I think for Indigenous communities, it is about just enabling people to find the space themselves to determine what their food economy looks like Mm. and it might be meat it might be it might be something that we don't have here but you're right you, you can't be patronizing and just impose solutions upon people based on what you think is right for them but i think that this also goes deeper into australian culture where there are lots of unresolved issues that we have with our indigenous populations and the way that we relate to each other and communicate with each other and the things that we think about each other. And those things are also part of that conversation.
2: Hmm. Um, I think there's probably also, um, it, it's, you can make a credible, argument that, um, market gardening in the style that we do it even is, um, you know, another act of colonialism as well, because uh, all the plants that we're growing are all imported ones. Um, And so... And we're
1: growing on land that is Indigenous land that is unseeded. Absolutely. So we might not... We don't own the land. We're borrowing it. But the land is essentially in private ownership by, you know, somebody who is... And we are benefiting from colonialism, Mm. continuing colonialism.
2: Yeah. and so, you know, self-determinism is important, uh, but it's also our responsibility to do something to fix these problems that we've imposed upon the rest of the world and the other parts of our country too. Um, and perhaps part of that is, um, um, you know, using some of our resources to figure out um, uh, ways of producing food that are less colonial, and um, or that don't continue the the colonial project. Um, or, reducing, like.
1: and, or reducing, you know, it goes back to these long supply chains where our reach from yak and through our food system is literally everywhere in the world. Mm. It's all all around Australia and to every corner of the world that you can imagine. And it's on us to actually reduce that to the point where we can take responsibility for it ourselves and give other people the opportunity to to take responsibility for their food systems or to even participate in their own food yep. systems. I think, yep. for me, that's the crux of it. You know, we need to... Climate change and social justice demands that we actually reduce our impact to the point where we can see see what the impact is and how we can take responsibility for right. it. And food just happens to be a really awesome way to do that.
2: Yeah,
0: What's the, the
2: easiest and most yeah. obvious? It's sort of step one.
1: And the yeah. most delicious.
0: And the biggest one, because we do it three, however many times a day. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. After the cafe closed, what did you do?
2: Well, we needed to spend some time away from town. Uh, We knew that uh, in the approach to the end of the cafe, that uh, you just needed to change the scene for a while. And a friend of ours had just recently moved to Brisbane. So we thought, right, that's it. As soon as we're done, dusted, packing everything up from the cafe, we're jumping on our bikes and going to visit our friend in Brisbane. So it took us three months to get there. Um, So
0: what, two two thousand kilometres or something? (laughs) (laughs) Probably, and then some.
2: (laughs) Uh, And on that ride, uh, we did a little bit of woofing, staying on people's farms and um, uh, helping in the gardens. And we also did some farm stays at um, some market gardens. And we've done a lot of woofing in the past, but this was the first time we'd ever really spent time on market gardens. And Uh, yeah and that was a real eye-opener to us and we got really excited and um, uh, when we were in Brisbane we spent a bit of time investigating the, the urban food scene up there which was uh, really fun uh, we spent a bit of time on loop growers farm uh, and we spent a bit of oh, well, we went to the farm stall of uh, pocket city farm mm-hmm. uh, and yeah just sort of the time we spent with Loop uh, felt more like, even though we were only on their farm, it felt like we were spending time with, you know, the dozen businesses that they're involved with as well, which was really exciting.
0: And you gorged on bananas because. <laughs> <laughs> well, we knew
1: we couldn't bring any back with us with this banana-free zone that we've just implemented. So uh, we also.
2: At the start of the trip, we also intended for it to be a roadside stall tour of the east coast of Australia. (laughs) You know, on that front, it was probably a little disappointing we had counted fewer roadside stalls than what we
0: imagined. I think there aren't as many as there used to be. Mm. I really think there are not as many as there used to be.
1: Yeah, it's a shame. Mm. It's a shame because it it is like a geographic marker, you know. We are now in banana territory. And I I think
0: part of that is that local governments don't have a, a, a... coherent policy about encouraging that or supporting it.
1: Yeah. yeah. In fact,
0: you know, that you're likely more to get hammered over the head yes. about why you can't do it than yeah. the red carpet rather, you know, red carpet versus red tape.
1: Yes, that's right.
2: Gee, I remember going to Brisbane in 88 for Expo, uh, and we went up with my family in a camper van and and that was like a a tour of roadside stalls of southeast Queensland. It took us forever to get to Brisbane because we just kept stopping and buying macadamias. It was, ridiculous yeah. uh but yeah on when we came home uh we had some pretty well formed ideas about uh, starting a small urban farm because uh, we're not landowners and at our home here we really own the land we own is really just the footprint of the building so there's mm. no real space for growing uh, although
0: it's not that you're not trying
2: we managed to squeeze a few plants in here and there and chickens and yeah, yeah. um uh, but yeah, so we came back with this idea that we were going to build an urban farm cobbled together from patches of land borrowed from friends and neighbours. Um, and we had a few preliminary conversations with our neighbours about making some space in their backyards available to us. Uh, and you know there was interest in that and they seemed quite keen and we were thinking that we were going to sell via um, a roadside stall on the footpath here at the front of the house. and. Uh, we spent probably a week in town
0: <laughs> we're in town by the way <laughs>
2: <laughs> and we might still do that one day but within the first week of us getting back and talking to people about this because we figured if we talk about our ideas opportunities will present, present themselves and that's exactly what happened we were in the library one afternoon and uh, we just happened to be sitting next to tim uh, who asked us what we we're up to and we told him about plans and he said oh great um I've probably got some things that you can use. I used to grow tomatoes. And we were like, wow, uh, that's amazing. Um, he had some cedars and some equipment. And he said, oh, I'll just go home and see what I've got. And um, and we came home from the library really excited. Wow, you know, it's happening. Uh, and the phone rang about an hour later. And it was Tim who had said that he'd been home and he'd spoken to Cheryl. And uh, they sort of went did a bit of an audit of the things that they could give us to help us get started and um, in this discussion they said well you know if we were starting out uh, doing this kind of thing the best thing that anyone could offer us would be land and we have heaps of land so do you want to come out and use some land and um, yeah we're just giddy with excitement we went out and had a look at the patch Uh, it came with irrigation infrastructure already in place because Tim grows trees and uh, yeah, the rest is history, I guess.
0: Mm. Yeah. How long ago was that?
1: That was September last year. This time, exactly this time last year. Yeah. And that's
0: your. Oh, I hate the word business. Is it? So it's you go, our you livelihood. Get a, yeah, livelihood. That's a bad, <laughs> better <laughs> No, much nicer. And so you get on your bikes and go out there
1: every yes, every day. day. Every day. Yep. So we, for our lives, we're ultimately aiming to be car free, and the the farm being 5k's out of town and you know us needing to transport veggies and stuff back and forth was going to pose a significant challenge to that because there's only, you know, you, you have to do it with a car essentially until we discovered these, um, this great, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Our yeah. um, until we discovered these great electric cargo bikes. It's very hilly out there on the mm. way out there, you mm. you know, to transport 40 kilos of veggies up and down hills is a significant challenge. On we'll, a bike. Grow,
0: we'll grow leafy greens next <laughs> year.
1: <laughs> right. And only herbs. Um, so we've, We bought uh, an electric cargo bike, Um, we can transport about 100 kilos in the tub on the front and we got a conversion kit for my bike and have just been given an old bike trailer that we're sort of going to rip apart and rebuild in some fashion so that, I mean last summer we were only growing on about half the space that we have available to us out there and between the two bikes, we carried all of the harvest back here to be able to, you know, process it. And your market
0: gardening experience and training is?
1: Is learning on the job quickly (laughs) as you go, which is, um, hugely rewarding because you know, this, I think this, this livelihood presents us with the opportunity to do this great physical work outside. And to be constantly thinking on your feet about what it is that you're actually trying to do. Um, You know, we've got little bits of gardening knowledge that we've picked up from having home veggie gardens for years, and you know, little things that we encountered on the market gardens that we visited on the way to Brisbane. And we've read a lot of books, and we've looked at a lot of websites, and watched a lot of YouTube videos. But ultimately, it's gonna, it, it all comes down to what is happening. You know, are the slugs eating these things and not these things? Uh, you know, if you've got mice trying to nibble the tops off radishes or whatever it is. And is it all working? It's working. Yeah. And
0: what are you doing with the produce that, as you harvest it? Uh, well, it all
2: comes... We do a harvest day once a week. Uh, it all comes back home here for washing and um, um, packaging. Uh, and we have... A, Mailing list of about 50 customers and of those 50 customers, there's probably, we'd get about 20 orders a week. Uh, we run an online shop. So, so it's can... on a
0: weekly order basis. You're yeah. not thinking about a CSA or anything like that? No. no.
1: So before COVID, we would run, a, because we live opposite the primary school here. So on a Friday afternoon at school pickup time from three o'clock till 4.30, we used to run a little market stall out the front of our house. Mm. Um, and we gave people who signed up to our mailing list the opportunity to pre-order their veggies, so we would put together a box and have it waiting out there, but then whatever we had that was excess, we'd also have on the stall. And once COVID sort of started to make its impact felt, we changed that to an entirely um, pre-ordered online shop, and Chris delivers boxes on the electric bike on Friday afternoons, and people who need to come and pick up come and pick up from the house still and I wait out the front for them. But um,
0: And that's all working?
1: It yeah. works. Yeah, yeah, it works. Mm.
0: So what's in the box this week?
1: <laughs> uh, this week we've got carrots, beetroot, purple cauliflower, cabbages, kale, chard.
2: Rocket, lettuce.
1: Radishes. A braising mix. Yep, coriander, dill. That's what th- a
0: lot of variety. Yeah, wow.
1: So, and we we're, we're able to so we're growing on 400 square meters now. When we started it was on about 100 square meters and then by the end of summer we were up to 200 square meters, but we still had these extra two little block like um patches I guess within this we call them quadrants that it's like four quadrants that make up a grid. Um so we're on 400 square meters now, which is tiny in the world of market gardening. It's tiny. Hmm. But um, because it is such a small scale and it you know we call it human scale because it's what we can deal with by using hand tools pretty easily between the two of us on a fairly part-time sort of basis um, because it's that scale it means that we can interplant things uh, we can we can have quick rotations of stuff we've concentrated mainly on quick rotation veggies um, and we do have, we have a lot of variety at the moment because we're coming out of winter. The, the quantity of each variety is, is a bit more minimal because also we were starting on this sort of scaled back um, 200 square metre size. But we think that going into summer now, we'll really be able to have things pumping. Hmm. Um, Surely can plant banana
0: trees around the edge.
1: The bananas are literally <laughs> just around the corners. <laughs> yeah so it's a model that works and it works for us um we don't want to replicate our 12-hour cafe days it was really important for us when we started the garden that we make it a livelihood and just a part of our lives not something that would consume our entire lives although as you can see around our house our house is filled with seeds and Gardening gear and you know preserving jars and things like and that boxes. and boxes of gardening. I think lots you do don't. <laughs> I don't think you two
0: know where to start in terms of passion takes you right to the edge.
1: <laughs> but it was important that we have we have time in our lives to do community stuff too because the cafe didn't enable us to do that. No, no.
0: Um,
1: and we're we're doing it. That's what we're doing. So financially,
0: you're the same as you were running the cafe, but you just have more time. Yes,
1: yeah. Yeah. we're rich. Yeah. It does feel like that. Yeah. I think it's the time that makes you feel like, whoa, you know, like this is, this is a really, um, we're in a really great, position I guess because we can spend time, well pre-COVID anyway we can spend time with people we can volunteer doing things that we care about, you know we can participate in community events, we can do things on weekends
2: It's amazing how, um, I was before that at the end of the cafe experience we just had this desperate need to be away for a while it's like, gotta get out of here, we need to change of scene desperate to go away and, uh, and that was very much a product of working long days and um and structurally not being able to do anything else uh and now um you know if we had a week where we didn't need to be at the garden we'd be lost uh you know we we, we had it's the exact opposite like we feel the need to be around you know we feel like we would miss out if we were to go away somewhere for a period mm. of time uh if, even if we were going to visit my parents for a couple of days,
0: uh, we'd come back and be like, "What
2: have we missed out on?" So uh, you're
0: you're really happy to be back. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and it, there's been an element of this on every trip that we've ever done in our lives that, when you encounter, when you go away and encounter uh, exciting ideas or something new and different, um, it just encourages it, or it just it breeds a desire to get home and mm. put those things into your life somehow. So it was hard to be away for well uh, after a period of time. There was a a very strong pull Mm. to come
0: home. Well, it's all downhill from Brisbane.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Theoretically,
0: so (laughs) doesn't everything flow south?
1: (laughs) Would be nice if it worked that way.
0: (laughs) Do Do you worry about the future, about retirement, and how How old are you? You
1: thirty eight.
2: I feel like I am retired (laughs) because you're very
0: idealistic, but you know, the, 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 the big dominant magnetic model of Australian society and, and economic rationalist thinking, neoliberal thinking is worrying about the future and putting money into your superannuation Mm. and all of that. Does that, is that a conversation that you choose not to have?
1: Uh, I, I, it doesn't worry me. I'm not worried by it. My feeling is that I worry about climate change. Mm. And what I feel is that any financial security that people might feel or any sense of security that people might feel that they have right now in our current systems is going to be blown to bits once we feel the impact, the, the true impact of climate change and that real security actually comes from having a good community around you and, a, and good relationships with people. I
2: feel that really tangibly. Uh, I don't have a great deal in superannuation but I feel like there's more value in my friends and neighbors uh, in the future than whatever is in my business. account. And in account. the community in yeah, general.
1: totally. And we're really lucky, we're really lucky to live in this community for that reason because I think that if you live somewhere where you don't feel that connection or don't know people well, um, and, and if you don't have finance, financial security in your superannuation or whatever it is, or your retirement plan, then you, you're screwed on both accounts really. I think that
2: most people are inherently, there's an inherent need to sort of care for the people who are around you. And I think if you, uh, if you have time on your hands, the best thing that you can do with it is invest in your relationships, invest in relationships with the people who are around you. Uh, because, you know, if the shit does hit the fan, uh, then you're surrounded by people who have an inherent need to care for you. And we really felt that in January, uh, during the bushfire yeah. crisis, uh, um, yeah, everyone, even though a lot of people left, uh, there was a really, really great sense of just everyone
1: doing, keeping an things, eye out for each other, yeah. doing
2: little things for each other and, um, Sometimes it seems like those small things don't mean a great deal, but uh, you know, having someone look after your cat or lock up your chickens for you, or whatever it might be, but those things really add up and they make a oh, they sure really do. tangible yeah, yeah. difference to, to life.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: I don't think it's idealism. I think that it's this is reality. It's it's really coming to terms with what reality is going to be for us. It's mm. not going to be like this um, mm. for and it's, very long, for very for very much longer. I don't think.
2: Um, I, I guess the it, it seems ludicrous to describe uh, investing in your relationships uh, as idealistic when it's so tangible and practical as well.
0: That's your mm. superannuation. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Makes good
1: sense. And it's not strate- It's not that we're doing it strategically, yeah, but I. Course. But that is where I feel security.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, thanks again. Well, that's it for today. I'm Peter Kenyon. Thank you for listening. Please leave a comment or a suggestion at the unpeel.press website. Or find me on Facebook or Twitter. Thank you to Charles Sturt Uni for its support in getting the podcast underway through their Community University Partnership Grants. Special shout out to Dr Serena Killam from Charles Sturt and Nick Rose from Sustain Australia, helping to make the podcast happen. Theme music by Avocado Junkie. See you later.